from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Hello, friends, and welcome to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. The website for the program is TonyPerkins.com. Great show for you coming up. But first, for those who have a genuine interest and desire to learn more about running for office or how to help a good candidate run, join us for the Kingdom in Politics candidate training at this year's Pray, Vote, Stand Summit. Now, we've told you about the Pray, Vote, Stand Summit that will be happening in Atlanta, Georgia from September 14th to the 16th. We hope you will be there. But the training will be part of that on Friday, September 16th from 12 to 2 p.m. All of it's taking place at First Baptist Atlanta. A register for the summit as well as the candidate training at prayvotestand.org slash summit. Again, that's prayvotestand.org slash summit. We look forward to seeing you there. Today on the program, a California church had been fined $3.8 million by the state of California for holding church services in violation of state demands to close. The church just won a big victory in court. Their pastor will join us with an update today. In addition, the Minneapolis School Board and Teachers Union have reached an agreement that if any teachers need to be let go, they will fire the white teachers first. Seriously. More about this shocking story later in the program. In addition, what should you be aware of as you send your children back to school? Tiffany Justice from Moms for Liberty will join us for that conversation on the program as well. But the headlines today, it's now been 10 days since the FBI raid of former President Trump's residence in Florida. Despite public comments from Attorney General Merrick Garland last week, many questions still remain regarding the necessity and scope of the investigation. The Department of Justice released the search warrant that was used for the search, but former President Trump has called for the immediate release of the affidavit used to get the warrant, which the Justice Department has so far opposed. Tomorrow, a magistrate judge will hold a hearing to decide whether to unseal more documents up to and possibly including the affidavit. With me now to discuss this is U.S. Representative Dan Bishop, who's a member of the House Judiciary Committee and the Homeland Security Committee. He represents the 9th Congressional District of North Carolina. Congressman Bishop, good to see you today. Hey, Joseph, good to be with you again. Now, we haven't had the chance to talk about any of this yet. So what what are your reflections, your thoughts on the initial raid, uh, the Justice Department's response since then, what we've learned about how all of this has been done? Uh, Joseph, my view is that it signals an an FBI and a DOJ that are wildly off track, that have have become something Americans do not recognize. And I think uh, they they have destroyed in a a single strike uh, the uh, credibility built up by the Justice Department and FBI over many years. So that's my general impression. Uh, You know, on this latest thing about the uh, the judge being asked to release the affidavit. It is common, uh, notwithstanding that there's a First Amendment uh, right of access for the public to uh, uh, to court records of certain types. It is common for the uh, courts to withhold uh, warrants and affidavits while a criminal investigation is still ongoing. Uh, but in this case, with the FBI kind of go- having gone halfway and sought the release of the warrant, uh, I think it's going to be hard for them to, su- to sustain 
a reasonable showing that it, at this point it is, it is appropriate, especially under the unique public interest circumstances of this matter, to withhold the affidavit in support of the warrant. And, um, and I, I think the American people need to see it. I, I believe the only answer to where we've gotten, the, where the FBI has taken us, where the DOJ has taken us, is, to, is transparency, uh, sunlight. Because I see nothing that is even hinted at so far that would justify the FBI having conducted a criminal raid on the former president of the United States for a matter that easily could have been resolved through civil process. Your colleague, Representative Fitzpatrick from Pennsylvania, is himself a former FBI agent. He said there's an assumption that this document would be released, referring to this affidavit, that it would be released in the interest of transparency. Here's what he said. Let's play clip five. The real story will be with the release of the affidavit itself, uh, which is not currently planned to be released. It is filed under seal. The prosecution does have to repeatedly go back to the court and ask that it remain under seal. There is a baseline presumption that that document be released to the public in the interest of transparency. That's what's going to tell us really what most of us want to know. Representative Bishop, does that give you confidence that the public is ultimately going to get a chance to see this? Well, I have no doubt, Joseph, that in, at some point in time, the, the public will be allowed to see it. And I don't disagree with Representative Fitzpatrick as to the fact that the baseline, as he put it, is that all public access exists to all these documents. But it's a question of timing. And if the FBI makes a showing of significance that uh, that there's a there, you know, uh, interest of of the grand jury secrecy or witness cooperation, I believe, is what they've cited. Uh, that that is uh, jeopardized if there's a release, then ordinarily, in the ordinary course, at this point in a criminal investigation, it wouldn't be released. Uh, but again, this is no this is no ordinary case, Joseph. It certainly is not an ordinary case. Is there anything that Congress can do with congressional oversight to expedite this process, or are we at this point uh, up? We're just waiting on the discretion of the Justice Department and perhaps the magistrate. Well, as you know, I serve on the Judiciary Committee with ranking member Jordan, Jim Jordan. Uh, but it's Jerry Nadler and the Democrats in the majority. Uh, we've said uh, Jim Jordan has called for Merrick Garland to be in front of our committee explaining what the DOJ is thinking here uh, the Friday after that, um, after that warrant was served. Uh, but I don't think Jerry Nadler is going to do that. Uh, what we need in order to exercise, I do believe that we have to exercise historically unprecedented uh, oversight over the Justice Department because they're taking uh, steps that are historically unprecedented in, in, in ways that are of great concern uh, for the administration of fair and neutral justice. Um, American people are getting fed up with the dual standard of justice, with politicized, apparently politicized justice. And I can tell you one thing, in a Republican majority, we're going to get to the heart of it, get to the uh, get to all the information about what's been going on with the Whitmer, Whitmer kidnapping with January 6th, with, with this uh, activity toward President Trump and many other things. It does seem likely that those questions will be asked, but it's a matter of whether it's before November or after November, and perhaps we're going to wait till afterwards. Now, uh, Congressman, I want to switch gears with you a bit because President Biden finally got to sign his sweeping tax bill, which he is referring to as the Inflation Reduction Act, Here's how he described the bill. The bill I'm about to sign is not just about today. It's about tomorrow. It's about delivering progress and prosperity to American families. How do you think it's going to impact the American public? Wow, he is so clueless. It is unbelievable. He is utterly out of touch 
Uh, everyone left and right, Bernie Sanders, uh, everybody agrees that this bill has no capacity, this law has no capacity to reduce inflation. It's going to make inflation work worse by a lot more federal spending. It's going to promote the likelihood of a recession by greater tax burden on the economy, on manufacturers, on energy production. Uh, it is, it's like, uh, you see, you know, the man's dr uh, drowning in the ocean, you throw him an anchor. That's what, like, the American people are trying to survive the inflation and, and the supply chain difficulties and the, nobody wants to work. And he just, he's, uh, you know, waving them bye-bye. That's all President Biden has done. This is a terrible bill, terrible bill. Well, not everyone seems disappointed by it. Your colleague, Representative Raskin, who's a Democrat from Maryland, uh, was hinted that the bill was going, has already reduced inflation, but he didn't have a great response as to why. Let's play clip four. I know that those who've been blaming President Biden for the inflation going up are now giving President Biden all the credit for inflation going down. So we're moving things in the right direction already. Yeah, and what parts of the bill do you think will will quickly work on that specifically? The, the, uh, next question. Is, is does he have uh, not a good answer to that because <laughs> there is no part of the bill that leads to inflation reduction? That's one of the best clips I've seen in a long time. That's Jamie Raskin to the core. He, he likes to pontificate, but he's not willing to uh, answer questions. If you're not willing to take the hard questions and answer them, uh, you're not worth your salt. And, and uh, Jamie's a radical. Uh, this gets it. You know, what, what he's delighted about is this bill uh, soothes the, the uh, desire of the left for radical ideology to, to be front and center on the climate and so forth. The last thing they're concerned about is the well-being of the American people at their family dinner table and, and how they put food on that table and how they take care of their kids and, and uh, meet their bu family budgets. What should the federal government be doing to improve the economic situation for families? It restore the, the uh, soundness of the American currency. We should be, uh, we should be uh, uh, cutting taxes. We should be uh, unleashing the American energy sector in order to bring prices down. We should be doing everything we can to cut regulation so that they get government out of the way of the economy, producing goods and services so that you're not seeing supply constraints that also contribute to inflation. I mean, it's really, it's very simple. Ronald Reagan did it in 1981, 82, uh, and launched the biggest peacetime recovery in, in American history at the time. And it continued for 25, 20, uh, over 25 years, Joseph. We could do that again, but instead, uh, the, the ideologues are in control, and they're just thumbing their nose at the American people's plight. Congressman Bishop, one other topic. The July report from the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol states that border apprehensions this year are at a new record of more than 2 million people just this year. For context, there are 12 states, 12 of the 50 states, have a population of less than 2 million people. This is a big number of people who have come into the country illegally this year. Is this going to get the administration's attention so that they might be deciding to do something different? Hmm. That is the $64,000 question. I guess the answer would have to be no. We've seen month after month after month of astonishing record levels of irregular migration across the southwestern border. Uh, nothing has prompted. In fact, all you've seen from the Department of Homeland Security, from Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, is denial and insistence that our border is secure, uh, that everything is working as it should be. I mean, it's just uh, I, I think uh, 
another case of being out of touch or, I mean, there's an extreme, again, ideological commitment to open borders policies across the world that the left has. Uh, they think the United States is better served yeah. by having any number of people who want to come here uh, get in and, and no, no process at all. I think it's killing m migrants right and left. It's horrible for them. It's horrible for the yeah. American people. And it's not just killing migrants. Uh, one of the other data points from July, 2,071 pounds of fentanyl were seized at the border. That, of course, begs the question, how many thousands of pounds of fentanyl were not seized at the border? What do you think it would take for the Biden administration to change the policy to deal with what we're seeing there? And, and, and Joseph, record drug deaths in the United States, uh, 100,000, you know, the leading cause of death among uh, young people. Uh, I, I don't I don't I really don't know. I, one of the things that's been most interesting from last year when uh, Glenn Youngkin won in Virginia is to see that Democrats have not moderated, have not reconsidered the radical path that they've been on. Instead, they have at every at every point have doubled down. And uh, and, and that's where we are on on the border, that's where we are on uh, on the implications of for drug, uh, uh, you know, people uh, in uh, suffering drug overdose deaths in the United States. It just uh, they just don't seem to want to turn and recognize that they're driving the American people into the ditch. That does seem to be the case, and uh, we'll see how the voters respond to it this November. Congressman Dan Bishop, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Joseph. Coming up, a California pastor whose church was fined millions of dollars for holding church services despite the state's instructions not to had a major victory in court today we'll tell you all about it when we come back here on washington watch stay with us would you like to spend consistent time in god's word then join family research council on an exciting journey through the bible FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading intentionally. You will dive deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues of today. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. His Word is necessary in our lives, so much so that Christ said, we are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He calls it our daily bread because we need it daily to sustain us and nourish us spiritually just like food does physically. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org slash Bible. First Peter 3.15 instructs us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that we have. The mission of FRC's online center for biblical worldview is to carry out that verse by training Christians to advance and defend the faith in their families, communities, and the public square, as now more than ever, we need to be grounded in the truth of God's word. The Center for Biblical Worldview provides amazing written resources for a wide range of relevant issues, including biblical stances on voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality. Each of these topics comes as a free downloadable PDF version, abbreviated version, and Spanish translation, along with a prayer guide. To access this written series or to sign up for the Center for Biblical Worldview's monthly newsletter, visit frc.org worldview. 
Did you know that from as early as 12 weeks, and certainly by 20 weeks, an unborn child can feel pain? Did you know the issue of pornography is growing among women? Did you know that pornography, sex trafficking, and abortion are all linked and on the rise across the globe? Issues such as pornography, human trafficking, drug legalization, and abortion are all violations of human dignity and have resulted in the devaluation of human life in our culture. Family Research Council stands firm on the principle that every life has value, ought to be respected, and has been designed for a unique purpose. Educate yourself on the harms of pornography, human trafficking, and abortion so that you can offer hope and help. Learn more at frc.org forward slash life. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, Calvary Chapel San Jose right in the heart of Silicon Valley, stood as perhaps the most persecuted church in America. Their insistence on remaining open led to millions in state and local fines. But this week, the California Court of Appeals possibly ended the state's crusade, ruling in favor of the church in three separate cases. With me now is Pastor Mike McClure, the senior pastor of Calvary Christian Fellowship, and he joins us to tell us more about it. Pastor Mike, good to see you today. Good to see you. Thanks for having me on. Well, we're glad to have you. Uh, I want to talk about the victory, but first, tell us why you felt it was so important to remain open despite orders from the government to close. Well, mainly because it's biblical. You know, you look at, uh, first of all, you know, we went along with what uh, was asked of us for the, you know, so-called pandemic at first. We thought, let's just see what this is and be obedient to what we've been asked. And then we realized it's more important that people get ministered to, and there's a lot of people hurting. I mean, it got to the point we opened up with all of all those other uh, churches in California. Uh, it was in May, uh, Pentecost Sunday, that we opened, and so we didn't do anything different than another 1,500 churches, I believe, that opened and, and did like us. So we just knew there was a need, and as a church, you know, there was a lot of people that were hurting, and as a pastor, I mean, it was a biblical mandate to not forsake the gathering to gather the saints, as it says in Hebrews 1025, so that's what we did. Well, there has been a cost. Your church faced $3.5 million in fines. The state had planned to take your building and your home and your finances. Apparently, they convinced your bank to foreclose on your house. You even faced the potential for jail time. What's the process been like over these last couple of years? Well, yeah, the county uh, wrote a letter to our uh, bank, and they did uh, send a letter to uh, foreclose on us or to begin that process. And so <laughs> uh, it was pretty crazy times. I, I think a lot of people were afraid. Uh, I went back to just, you know, just looking at what, what the Bible has to say and what is a pastor really called to do and what did Jesus say about a hireling. And so, you you, you know, when you know this is what God wants you to do and you see you know, the scripture that's so clear and you follow it. I, I just think this is, this is what God says to do. And, and he's, he's rewarded us for it. So we did have a lot. I think you have to, to, to analyze and think about what are the costs, but the reality is if you're a Christian, 
Jesus says to deny yourself, take up the cross, and then follow me. So before you even start, I think to, to follow Christ, you have to reckon the old man dead. You know, that's kind of what um, Paul talks about in Romans 6 when we're baptized, that we're really baptized into Christ, that we're, you know, not to be living in Romans 7, that we're really to be living in Romans 8. And that's someone who's already counted the cost and as pastors, that's the deal. You know, if you're going to follow Christ, Jesus says you're either a pastor or a hireling. And a pastor is one who doesn't run away when the wolves show up or when the government says stop following, you know, the, the biblical uh, commands and start following these mandates. And so I, I think it was wading through what's really going on. And then like a lot of pastors who are also doing the same, we realized this is something different and we have got to stand our ground because for the first time I see that the government coming against the church house like never before. Fortunately, there is some good news. Tell us what happened in court this week. Well, we had uh, been given uh, a contempt. I was uh, had a court order. There was an injunction uh, against the church. And then, you, you know, there was a, a, a restriction on anyone coming to church. Uh, we were given, uh, you know, these things that, hey, if you show up, you're going to be uh, potentially arrested. So we, we, you know, we defied those orders. You know, I, I don't think of it as defiance. I think of it as just obeying God above man. But nonetheless, um, the court, uh, we were in court, I think, three full days. And uh, we were commanded to basically, we, we had these fines against us. Uh, personally against the church, uh, Carson and I, another assistant pastor here, we, um, who were, was in court with me. And then we appealed that to the Sixth Circuit State, uh, California Appeals. And, uh, they looked at that and said everything that was done to us was completely unconstitutional, more or less, is what they said. And, uh, so, you know, it's, it's great. Praise God. You know, we have a First Amendment still in California. Yeah. I think we're all, Wondering if that was the case. And uh, today you could look and say, we still have our First Amendment. And so we're able to to worship and look back and realize the things that they had put against the church um, was completely unconstitutional. So we're praising the Lord for that. And, and we celebrate with you. Among other things, the judge said, quote, preliminary injunction that effectively prohibited indoor worship services while allowing certain secular indoor activities to occur, is unconstitutional on its face, end quote. Uh, do you feel vindicated by all of this? You know, not really uh, feeling-wise. I, <laughs> I don't really have any feelings about it. But I would say uh, the sense of what's right and wrong. You know, you, you have the biblical mandate, like I said, but you also have a judicial system that you can look and say it still works. You know, and even if we were ruled against, I would say I could stand before God today and know I did the right thing. Right. And we have the evidence of the fruit of people's lives. You know, we've had, I think, about 800 people baptized that have come to Christ. And we would have missed all that if we would have closed the doors or we wouldn't have ministered to people. And, and a lot of people said that they wouldn't be alive today, you know, and it's not because they would have died of COVID. It would have been uh, things that would be more self-inflicted. I, I think the suicide rate, which uh, we still don't know the, all the numbers, the county covers that up, unfortunately. And I just think it's sad. We live in a country now where the church is, is still seen as the bad guy and the county. Um, their response to the Ninth or the Sixth Circuit is basically that they're wrong and they're going to keep fighting. And I just thought, I don't want to fight with you guys. I just want people to 
hear the gospel. Right. And, you know, when we see our country, we rejected the gospel in the 60s. We kicked God out more or less the public square. Ever since, we've just seen the repercussions of that. And, you know, in, in academia as well, we got to go back to, to look at civics and what the Constitution was written about, who wrote it, 27 of these you know, uh, signers were, were pastors like me, much smarter, of course, uh, but <laughs> they knew what was coming and they prepared us and they've given us this great document that we can stand on and, you know, praise God that uh, uh, we have a judicial system that says Mike, that we can't. We, we are out of time, but your, your obvious peace and your confidence and your example in this, uh, we celebrate with you, but we really, uh, even more than that, we thank you for your courage and your example. Thanks for being with us as well today. Thanks for having me, and God bless you all at, uh, at RFC. God bless you. We are thrilled to stand with you. Coming up next, should teachers be fired based on their skin color? The Minneapolis School Board says yes. We'll tell you about it when we come back. Stay with us. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org internships to apply. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you are with us. A quick note on the last segment that we had there with Mike McClure, the example that he has been to the entire country. And I hope you saw in that interview really the confidence that he has, the peace he has. A lot of us are facing decisions in our lives about whether about whether to do what we are told or do what we know is right. And the pressure to do what we are told is strong. But I hope his example makes it clear to you that you can do what is right as well. 
And when you do what is right, you see the examples of people who survive that. And not only survive it, you heard the testimony there of all the people who have come to the gospel in large part because of his courage and example. And I hope that that will encourage and inspire you in whatever decisions you are currently facing in your life. Coming up next, a very interesting story, a shocking story, in fact, out of the state of Minnesota, a recent agreement between Minneapolis Public Schools and its teachers union states that if a teacher needs to be laid off, white teachers will be fired first. Specifically, the agreement reads, quote, if accessing a teacher who is a member of a population underrepresented among licensed teachers in the site, the district shall access the next least senior teacher who is not a member of an underrepresented population, end quote. Now, that's legalese for fire the white people. While this appears to violate multiple federal laws, an executive board member of the teachers union celebrated it saying he hopes it can serve as a national model for retaining non-white teachers. And I assume there are many who would like to make it a national model. Joining me now to discuss this is Douglas P. Seaton. He's the president and founder of the Upper Midwest Law Center. He is a former teacher who has practiced labor and discrimination law in Minnesota for decades. Mr. Seaton, welcome to the show. Glad to be with you. We're glad to have you. What was your reaction when you first heard about this agreement between the Minneapolis School District and their teachers union? Well, we were horrified. Uh, my colleague and I, we were just three lawyers. Uh, but as soon as we heard about it, we thought this is terrible, terrible stuff. It is racist to the core. It's a violation of the 14th Amendment. It's a violation of the civil rights laws. It's contrary to everything our country stands for in terms of equal, equal justice under law. Now, Mr. Seaton, it, it seems obvious that if this rule was proposed okay. in the reverse, if the, if the school board and the teachers unions got together and they made a policy where they said, well, if we have to let somebody go, let's make sure to fire the Hispanic teachers or let's make sure to fire the black people. That would be outrageous. But in this case, since the rule says we're going to fire the white people, not only is it not outrageous, apparently, but they actually came to an agreement that this was the right thing to do. Why is that? Well, it, it's very misguided, and we, we don't we don't uh, attack their motives. We know they intend the right thing in many in most cases, but as a matter of fact, this is simply racist. And as you say, if you did turnabout on this, uh, everyone would understand how wrong it is, and it makes it no better uh, that the races are flipped in this in this equation. Because our civil rights laws and the Equal Protection Act make no distinction uh, between races. It's all races that must be treated, treated equally. And we, we know that's the law. We're confident that uh, there would be no sustaining this once we get to court. So this is a question of simply finding the right uh, plaintiffs who are equally outraged about this, who are taxpayers or teachers, uh, in Minneapolis, who are subject to, could be subject to this provision, and bringing that case in federal court, and yeah. we we certainly intend to do that. There may be uh, others joining us as well. 
Well, I think it's important for people to understand where this is coming from because the left has proposed this oppressor and oppressor and, and, and an oppressed dynamic where everybody fits into that one of those categories and that happens based on their skin color. And under that framework, it's okay to do bad things to those that they see as the oppressors based on their skin color. But Mike, tell us, what does the Constitution say? about the government's ability to use skin color as a basis for firing someone. It says basically you cannot do it. Uh, you can't use a racial category to for hiring and firing purposes. Now, the only exception to that is in the case of an actual employer who has a, a, a finding, a history of specific discrimination against a particular group. In that case, there may be approved a remedy that relates specifically to that employer, that institution, and, and those, uh, the group that was uh, oppressed by that, uh, that discriminatory behavior. Now, we're confident there's no such thing going on here. Uh, the people who are responding with this provision are simply saying, well, society has been bad. Uh, to uh, to blacks in particular and and other other uh, other peoples of color, and therefore we're going to do this thing to white teachers who had nothing to do with any of that, right. uh, in order to right that wrong. And that's simply not allowed under the Constitution. And the courts have spoken on this many many times. Doug Seaton, in about thirty seconds, we know what the school board and the teachers unions have said. Any word from the members, the teachers themselves? Any reaction? Well, I know we have had a blizzard of voicemails and and uh, emails and calls from from those who are in Minneapolis who are outraged at this behavior uh, and this practice. And we are we are reaching out to people to be sure we can identify who's in the best position to challenge it. We do know that uh, many teachers are are intimidated by what their teachers union is doing. You pointed Mr. out Seaton, the terrible are, ideology they're opposing. Unfortunately, they like I've got to cut you off because we are out of time. Thanks for being with us. Glad to be with you. Thank you for doing it. Coming up next, more Back to School. Tiffany Justice from Moms for Liberty will join us. Stay with us. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, Family Research Council created a tech subscription platform to be sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. It is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. So if we get canceled, you can still access updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. 
Again, just text STAND to 67742 and you will get alerts on the biggest stories of the day. With just a simple text, always have access to our content and stay informed and connected with like-minded community. Text STAND to 67742. That's STAND to 67742. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make the difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. Thrilled that you are with us. The website, as always, is TonyPerkins.com, where you can find this into every episode of Washington Watch whenever it's most convenient for you. If you are a high school or university student, you are invited to a special free worldview session at the Pray Vote Stand Summit on Friday, September 16th from 4 to 7, where you can ask anything about the most controversial issues that are troubling you. Critical race theory, LGBT curriculum, how to engage with truth and love. If you've got hard questions, we've got great answers for you. Register for free online at prayvotestand.org slash summit for the worldview component of our Pray Vote Stand event. We look forward to seeing you in Atlanta in September. Well, it's back to school time for students across the nation. For many parents, the COVID-19 pandemic provided a wake-up call to the state of their children's schools. With Zoom classrooms and virtual learning, parents had to look into what was going on in the classroom. And when schools finally did reopen, Mask mandates, vaccine mandates, critical race theory, and LGBT indoctrination were all part of the new normal in many classrooms. The result has been a vocal and growing grassroots movement of parents working to influence the direction of the educational system and the choices available to parents. Joining me now in studio to discuss this is a woman at the forefront of this movement. Tiffany Justice is a mother a former school board member and the co-founder of Moms for Liberty. Tiffany, welcome to the show. Thank you for having this. It's well, great. It's great to see you. Now, the last segment, we were talking about a school-related issue. Um, Minneapolis has decided uh, to adopt this policy. They put their heads together with the brain trust at the teachers' union, <laughs> and they decided that if they ever needed to fire somebody, they were going to fire the white people first. Does that surprise you based on what you're learning about our education system? No, but I mean, I, I did go to school and I was taught that racism is bad. And, and so uh, that sounds a lot yeah. like racism. to me. Well, 
one would think. But, I mean, isn't this con consistent with some of the, the emphasis? And that really is, a, I think, a component of critical race theory and, and the, the framework that they've established there, that race is the most important thing about us. It determines whether we're oppressors and, and the oppressed. Um, all the white people are the oppressors. The non-white people are the oppressed. And whatever you can do to extract a pound of flesh from the oppressors is a good thing. Is that essentially uh, an, an illustration, an example, real life lived out of what they're teaching our kids in class? Absolutely. This is exactly what they're teaching our children in class. I think it's interesting that the unions would like to talk about anything right. other than how our kids are actually doing in school. Are they learning to read? And the answer is no. In fact, they are not. What are you saying? Moms for Liberty, what, what are you doing around the country? Tell me how this got started, and then we'll get into some of the issues. So I served as a school board member from 2016 to 2020 in my children's school district. I'm a mom of four, uh, four kids 17 through the age of 10. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, so I served on school board, and it was yeah. very rewarding, very challenging, but I also really enjoyed it. And I got to learn about a lot about my children's education. And people will ask me, why did I run? I was unpacking a lot of backpacks, right? And you get to see behind the education curtain. Uh, yeah. One county up from me, a woman named Tina Deskovich, who's the co-founder, was doing the exact same thing. We didn't know each other uh, at the time, but after our terms came to an end, we both looked at each other and, and had seen the coverage of what it was like for yeah. us on our boards. We saw parental rights being really completely ignored and obliterated in these districts, yeah. with a lot of bureaucrats uh, making decisions and parents not being able to hold these unelected people accountable for the decisions that were being made. School board yeah. members kind of abdicated their authority. And so Tina and I said, we see a lot of parents. They are very concerned about what they're seeing their children being taught mm -hmm. or not taught, right? A and they are mobilizing, but they didn't exactly know how to work within the system to make the change that they wanted to see. We wanted to help them to be effective advocates. And so we started with two chapters in our own home counties, uh, and it very quickly grew. Uh, within three weeks, we had a call from New York, uh, Nassau County, New York, Barbara Abood, and then uh, Anne Arundel County, Maryland. And now, uh, since January 2021, 215 chapters in 40 states with over 100,000 active members. Well, we want to send some people your direction Great. today as well. Um, you were on the school board for four years. Is the school board the solution to the problem that we're dealing with right now? I don't know that the school board is completely the solution to the problem. That's a lot of pressure to put on elected officials who are moms yeah. and dads themselves. Yeah. I think that the school board is the start to, to kind of riding the ship as far as American public education is concerned. Uh, and we very much want to reclaim public education. Uh, we have seen conservatives in general be very, very focused on school choice for the past 20 years or so. Uh, we believe in school choice. We think parents are the best expert right. for their child. We believe in school choice and reforming public education. So when you get uh, people on school boards that recognize that parental rights are fundamental right. and that parents need to be partners in their children's education, but they respect the fact that, as we say, parents uh, will not co-parent with the government, right. right? Then you're going to change what the direction of the district is. The school board sets policy uh, in any given uh, community, and, and they set the budget, and which really does talk about where the priorities lie of the district. Um, and so uh, good school board members making better decisions for kids will be great for this country. Plus, yeah. you have a generation of people kind of cutting their teeth in politics and seeing that yeah. they really can make a difference in their community. And I think there's no end to the momentum that that will create. So it's kind of a bull fan situation, yes. and, and we're constantly encouraging people to run for the school board, and, and we want to continue to have people do that. But 
parents can't abdicate this to the school board members. And that's, that's an important thing to, uh, that we want to really hit home for people because parents are agitated. And they want to know what to do. And there's always this temptation to say, oh, well, they're going to take care of it. Right. They're really not. We have to come together and take care of that. Now, to that point, you're working with a lot of parents you are hearing their stories, you're, you're seeing them become agitated, getting involved in many cases for the first time. People are not instinctively political activists, but feel compelled. What is the, is there a single issue? Is there a driving issue that is motivating the parents that you're talking to? I think being ignored at that school board level when they did have concerns was the wake-up call, right? So parents would see certain things in the curriculum, woke ideology or their rights being ignored through COVID policies, and they would come to the school board and they would say, hey, you know, Tiffany Justice here, I've got some kids in your district, and I'm a little concerned about some of these things. I'm seeing, you know, my child with a speech impediment regressing right now, or um, I'm seeing that my child um, is feeling very disappointed and sad and upset about the fact uh, that, uh, you know, he's being told that America is a bad country. And, and, and so, you know, when you think about that as a parent, you come to your school board, you expect the school district and the school board to, to listen to you. And to hear you, but that's not what happened. We had mics being cut off at school board meetings. We had moms who were bringing books to school board meetings and trying to read this material. And, and their mic was shut down because it was something that wasn't appropriate uh, for a public meeting. And yet it was sitting on an elementary school library shelf. And so, you know, the hypocrisy yeah. became a little much. Um, yes. I think it's a, a number of different things. I think parents are concerned about um, the safety in schools and the discipline and the focus away from real teaching and learning because of the discipline issues. And they are concerned about the woke ideology. They are concerned that instead of giving be children being taught practicable skills, how to read, how to write, they're being taught to be politically literate or racially literate. And they're being taught and turned into little so social justice warriors. Yeah. And so, you know, I think American parents are saying before you activate our children into social justice warriors, if you could teach them how to read, uh, we'd really appreciate that. You know, in the last couple of weeks on the, on, on the show, we've we've talked about the the trickle down effect of the curriculum and uh, what we're seeing in elementary schools is really starting in our universities and, and the the instruction and the indoctrination that's happening in the education programs at the master's level at the undergraduate program. They are being fully immersed well catechized into social justice kind of worldview, mm -hmm. and then they are being dispatched as missionaries for wokeness, uh, for progressivism into our, the schools, and they are frankly doing a very effective job of evangelizing for, for their worldview. And the point that you make there about uh, parents being disturbed by the response they are getting uh, from their school board members, I want to play actually something that the New Jersey Education Association put together uh, to message on what the school board is dealing with. Let's play clip six. We don't agree on everything in New Jersey, but we all agree that our kids deserve a world-class education. So when extremists start attacking our schools, that's not who we are. People who only want to fight to score political points should take that somewhere else. <laughs> so extremists, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, I, I gotta assume you're gonna, you're gonna be one of the ones that they are referring to. Oh, and of gosh. course, they have pictures of, of parents mm -hmm. who are clearly emotional, and and in and, and at school board meetings. 
What's your reaction to that reaction from the school, from the teachers union? Sure. Um, it's the iron law of woke projection. Uh, the teachers unions <laughs> are the arsonists now pretending to be yeah. the firefighters in this situation. Um, I think the National Education Association is really the National Extremist Association. And if you look at their representative assembly agenda, the issues that they brought up, they talked about abortion. They talked about climate change. They talked about Ukraine and foreign policy. They talked about all of these different things that have nothing to do with our kids' education. And I know why they don't want to talk about education. If I were them, I wouldn't want to talk about it either. They've been controlling a system that is failing. The, the failure, the educational failure that we currently see in America falls squarely on the shoulders of the union. Well, and, and to that point, I actually did a bit of research on that this week. Approximately one-third of Americans, America's students are at grade level in math. Mm. A third, which, a of third. course means two-thirds are not. I'm sure China loves that. Well, and, 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 it just, and then we see this persistent emphasis on things that whatever you think of the issues are not fundamental, right? We should be able to agree that it's more important for our kids to be able to write a paragraph effectively and to be competent in math than it is for them to, you know, understand people's pronouns. But that really does seem to be the point of emphasis and the irony of it is, is if you disagree with the idea that boys can become girls, you are the extremist and they're running ads on television telling you that you're the extremist. Yes, I'm not sure where to start with that. I mean, I'd like for children to use pronouns properly. I think the idea that we have teachers that are uh, allowing and encouraging students to use they for one person is crazy. Right. And yeah, if you, we, we all agree that pronouns are important, right? But the way that they want, I mean, they're just redefining what pronouns are. Absolutely, and yeah. And, and so uh, yeah, I'll be honest. I don't think that the unions represent the teachers anymore. We have teachers that are joining that. us every right. day, and the teachers have kids of their own. They have families. They're moms and dads. We have an education system now that wants to raise kids. They really do want to raise the kids. They want to co-parent with us. In fact, they want to parent well, I, I the would object. I don't think they want to co-parent in some cases. They want That's to. True. They want to co-opt the parenting. They want to replace the parents. Correct. I agree with you about that. And we see that very directly with some very you know, specific instances of uh, children being put into social transition, gender transition in school. You know, six pages of documents a child is going through with a teacher at a school and the parent isn't being told about it. And sometimes and in Florida, we saw that a, a child was put into a social gender transition program. Uh, parents knew nothing about it. And the child tried to take their own life at school. And when the parents arrived, uh, they found out that the reason they hadn't been told was the fact that they were Catholic and that the school just figured they wouldn't affirm the child's gender because of their religion. So they just didn't bother them with that information. And so this idea that kids, especially these middle school girls that are going through a hard time in their lives anyway, I continue to say, please find me a middle school girl who absolutely loves going through puberty. Um, I'm still waiting. Yeah. Um, but the idea that you would cut parents out of their children's lives during middle school and as a mom of four kids, it's a hard time for kids anyway. There's a lot going on. It's just wrong. And, and fundamental parental rights are something that a Moms for Liberty is working to protect and defend all over the country. And that brings to mind a piece of legislation in California that we've covered oh. recently, which would essentially give the state emergency parental authority over the children of those Catholic parents when they decide that you parents are a danger to your child because you don't want her to become a boy. You're talking they're, about SB 107. Yes, in, in, yeah. in California. And, and so this bill would give the state the authority to say, well, that's our kid now yeah. for these purposes. A couple minutes left. 
Tell us some good news. What are you, what are you <laughs> okay. seeing? You're, you're involved. A lot of people are getting involved. What's the effect of this? Yeah, we're building an, an army of moms all over the country, and we are joyful warriors. Extremist moms, no doubt. No, joyful warriors, yeah. right? I mean, they tried to call us a lot of names. I've heard a lot of names, including domestic terrorists, coming out of the DOJ and the FBI. Um, I don't think FBI agents really think that we're domestic terrorists. Uh, we had field offices that called moms and spoke with them and really were like, I'm really sorry I have to call you. This isn't. <laughs> so, you know, what we're seeing really is our own institutions that we've been taught and raised to trust being weaponized against us as American citizens. We are joyful warriors. We will fight like heck with a smile on our faces um, because it's a privilege to fight for this country. And we model for our kids fighting with joy and, and fighting to defend America and the survival of America. Um, family is incredibly important, and it's the foundation of what this country was built on. And so American parents are standing up for families and kids. There are There is good news. Moms and dads are running for school board. They are winning. Um, August 23rd, we have a primary coming up in Florida. Lots of people running for school board, and we'll see how that turns out. And so um, just really excited about the movement of new American citizens that are reengaging with the government and, and through politics and through elections. And I think uh, only good things are going to come from an entirely new political class who has nothing to gain other than to uh, hold up their community and the kids and, and family um, in those places. They're not looking for a political career. Uh, so that's exciting, I think. It is exciting. How can people connect with you? Please go to momsfortheberty.org. There's a big map. You can click on the map on your state and see if we have a county in your area. If we do not have a county, please click start a chapter. You need to have 10 like-minded people to start a chapter. You can't do this alone, right? You need to build your army in your own community. But local politics is where the action is. And we need to get involved and work in our own communities to make the change that we want to see. Tiffany Justice, thank you so much. Thank you. And friends, thank you for being with us. And remember, you are the solution to the problem. We know you've seen what's happening in schools. Uh, you are frustrated. Uh, we are making a difference. Be encouraged by those who are leading the way. Join them. Join her. Join Moms for Liberty. Uh, find out what you can do in your community because it does take all of us. It's a big problem. It's not going to be changed overnight, but it is going to change. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you next time on Washington Watch. Until then, fear God and nothing else. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at one 866 372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.